0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to all our listeners. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and that sovereignty was never ceded. My name is Swatika, and with me today we have the Principal Solicitor from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, Hannah Dickinson, with us. Thank you so much, Hannah, for your time.
1: Thanks, Swartika, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure.
0: I understand, Hannah, that your work predominantly involves refugees, and we would like if you could share what your role specifically entails and what made you passionate about this.
1: Absolutely. So my role is um, to lead the human rights law program in the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, We are a dedicated CLC assisting refugees and people seeking asylum with legal issues. What that looks like is everything from a primary application for a protection visa up through review at the tribunal and to court and beyond. So it includes things like requests to the minister. It includes strategic litigation. It includes applications for work rights. We specialise in the more complex areas of the law Um, and deliver services through an advice clinic and full representation model. I came to this area um, from a background in private practice and as a litigator at at Victoria Legal Aid. And the reason I joined ASRC was because I perceived an immense access to justice gap. This is not a system you can face without a lawyer, but so many people who need that support are going without, particularly those facing intersectional barriers to access to justice, including gender, sexuality and health. And my passion for the area really developed from the privilege of helping people to tell their stories and to have an impact, not only um, to make sure people are afforded due process, afforded the right outcome and obtained security and freedom in Australia, but also the broader impact of the policy work and litigation. It's it's um, very gratifying to be able to work in this space and very challenging and stimulating.
0: Thank you for sharing, Hannah. Yeah, that genuinely does sound like a very incredibly rewarding and fulfilling role. I understand that would come with quite a lot of, I suppose, stress and just a lot of workload in terms of how you've handled that or how you've managed to balance that with the other areas of your life, what advice would Mm.
1: you give? It's certainly not easy and I think working in any area where you're exposed to systemic injustice and uh, people's trauma, you need to acknowledge that there are going to be difficulties that come with that and it might not be for everybody. Typically, what I love most and what keeps me going is support from colleagues, realising the impact that you can have and taking uh, comfort in in that and that you are doing what you can um, for people who need that support, but also making sure you have things in place to balance. So, for example, at ASRC, we have... um, supervision so we have dedicated time for well-being and we try to create a really supportive environment for our team but it's challenging even with every protection in place it's still uh, sad but conversely inspiring because you hear the most extraordinary stories of um, people's resilience
0: and people's strength. Absolutely but yeah that is very important and thank you for that insight. Based on what I am aware of i believe that immigration detention is quite an important topic, so if you could share the main reasons that individuals are placed in detention in the first place?
1: Absolutely. Immigration detention, I think it's fair to say, is in crisis and over the past decades we've seen a constant worsening of conditions to the point that it's not tenable any longer. Australia's immigration detention framework is based on a few key principles. One of them is mandatory detention. Mandatory detention means if you don't have a visa, you must be detained. It's not a common system. Usually there are risk-based assessments on the appropriateness of detention. We don't do that. We detain everybody.
0: Mm.
1: We also have structures that permit indefinite detention, including of refugees and stateless people. And Mm. so what we see in Australia is Um, extraordinary numbers being exposed to immigration detention, extraordinary numbers of people left without status. And, of course, the impact of that on people is the fear of deportation, um, the denial of access to basic human rights and conditions, um, and family separation. It's it's an extraordinary thing to witness Mm. and something that we really, we consider a priority
0: in terms of reform. Yes. Okay. Well, that's quite disheartening to hear. But what are the conditions like in immigration detention facilities? I think it's very easy when we
1: speak as lawyers to sanitise detention conditions. And this goes for not only immigration detention, but other forms of custody. Fundamentally, what you have is confinement, the loss of freedom and isolation. And in immigration detention, people affected have very little remedy or right to review of their detention or its conditions. Mm, In my work at ASRC, um, we see every day up close the the horrors um, of Australian immigration detention. We see people um, who've lost hope, whose health deteriorates so much, they lose capacity and cannot function. Um, People who have disabilities who can't understand what's happening to them people who have lost contact with families, even their own children. Um, it, it's very, very grim and so grim, in fact, that 13 people have died in Australian immigration detention since 2018. Um, we see the use of force in huge numbers. So in one year alone, there were 7,400 instances of use of force across the network, and it's a an area that still uses regressive tools like spit hoods and body restraints. There's also inadequate health care, despite the very, um, I suppose, well-documented nature of the impact of long-term immigration detention on people's mental health. And the rates of self-harm are stratospheric. It's sort of a a quarter of people in detention roughly report self-harm
0: from year to year. That's horrible. Are there, I suppose, any legal rights or protections offered to individuals
1: in detention? There are very few. Mm. That's something we advocate for. There are oversight bodies but none can make enforceable recommendations. There are also the typical common law standards that people can access but again it's extremely hard to do so and fundamentally it is the detention that's the problem. There are In particular, you know, this is not an area where it's easy to access advice and support to understand what rights and protections you Mm. might um, be able to avail yourself of, but typically uh, legal representation has a huge impact and should be available to everybody.
0: Absolutely. Um, Do you know of or do you have a take on any effective alternatives to immigration detention, either in other countries or yet to be implemented?
1: Yes, and that's what makes the situation in detention so frustrating. There are very clear alternatives. Mm. The obvious one is the grant of a visa to a person in detention. There are extremely broad powers permitting that without application, by ministerial intervention or on application. Those visa, visas might include bridging visas. So for people who um, should be in the community for a short period of time or who are awaiting an outcome, they that might be the appropriate visa. There's also structures in place for community detention, which is where a person um, is essentially detained, but in a home. So they might be able to be with their family, um, but there are conditions that apply um, to their engagement with the community. They might not be allowed to work and they might have to report regularly.
0: I see. Okay. Um, You mentioned the bridging visa, but I've heard recently that there was some change introduced in terms of Temporary protection visas being converted to a resolution of status. Would you have any idea about what that change actually means? Yeah, it's a it's a welcome change. Mm-hmm.
1: The the concept of temporary protection in and of itself is fundamentally flawed, and through the fast track system, um, we've exposed thousands of people to waits up to 10 years for security. Mm. So the conversion of those people who were given temporary protection visas or who were eligible um, to permanence is very welcome, but there are still thousands of people who weren't affected by that um, policy. And there are thousands more who weren't even eligible for the temporary protection visas and who might have been on another pathway that also um, don't get any relief from that announcement.
0: I see. Okay. It sounds like you do some incredible work. In terms of like a more personal question, what is one thing that you would want to achieve in your field that you've yet to?
1: Look, I I think um, many of us in, you know, human rights and administrative law imagine that solutions are going to be simple and straightforward They do seem to be common sense, but progress is slow. And I'm really gratified to see the change in community attitudes and a slow reduction, I hope, in politicisation of this space. Um, These are people's lives and we need to make policy in a way that is fair, humane um, and sensible and capable of being accessed by the people who are affected. Mandatory and indefinite detention is something that needs to end from my perspective. Mm-hmm. It's completely inappropriate to expose people to these conditions. It's not only inappropriate and deeply harmful, it's unnecessary. And we also need to be very careful about lawmaking. For example, at the present time, um, we're exposing refugees to what's called constructive refoulement, which is where people who might be in detention for very long periods essentially give up and under duress agree to return to the country they were persecuted. And this is a relatively recent law that really set that in stone. It's just not okay. Uh, We need to have much better understanding and clarity in policymaking Um, and we need to end um, this trajectory towards harm and dismissal and exclusion of people seeking asylum, refugees and migrants. I, I believe it's within reach. Um, we would all like our work to become redundant. Mm. Um, but certainly it's it, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of commitment.
0: Mm, absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, I find it very interesting that you said you would like your work to become redundant, but I suppose that's when you know that <laughs> there has been progress and I guess the final question, Hannah, I think you've briefly answered this, but what is the most important thing that could positively impact the broader immigration process in Australia? The
1: biggest challenges facing, well, the biggest challenges that are impacting immigration in Australia are defective systems, uh, without the extraordinary delays we're seeing, you know, where the average detention period is 700 plus days, which is roughly 10 times a comparable country, uh, where people are waiting for visas for years without work rights and facing destitution, um, deterioration in health, um, and where our systems are just ill-considered and are producing the wrong outcomes, leading to reviews, litigation, and other challenges. We should be getting it right. We should have effective systems that allow people fair access. We should have people able to get advice when they need it. It, It's all very common sense um, and it's something that there's no no reason this shouldn't already be happening and the difference would be immeasurable were some of these changes put in place.
0: So Hannah, what are some of some areas of progress that you have seen in the past five years?
1: It's been extremely gratifying to watch um, increased community awareness of issues affecting refugees and people seeking asylum and that engagement uh, resulting in demands on government to make change. I think it was quite extraordinary in an area that is so highly politicised to see that shift, uh, particularly at the last election, for example, and to see uh, that compassion really uh, emboldening people to act and be involved in these human rights issues. Typically, it's been a little understood area, I, I think, often because it is so complex, because it is uh, often overwhelming in its depth and p- potentially uh, its sadness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: People have not been um, able to engage as they have recently. It's it's superb to see, and it is making a real difference on policy making. I think also there's been an incredible body of work being done by human rights lawyers, um, by advocates, by people with lived experience, um, particularly in the litigation and policy-making spaces, these movements are becoming more effective and able to communicate what issues are and why that needs to be changed. So the litigation protecting the rights of people impacted by the system has been very inspiring. Um, and I certainly... Think it's very stimulating and um engaging for people working in this area to see to see that work being done and to be able to contribute.
0: Mm-hmm. It's great to hear that there has been improvement. And I suppose the opposite end of that question, what are some key pieces of reform that you hope to see in the next five years? Well, I think um that
1: depends a lot on that question of community engagement as well. What we want to see as a starting point is less um, partisanship about refugee issues. It's not a political issue. Um, It's it's a basic issue of access to basic human rights. Um, The starting points for real change are reforming mandatory and indefinite detention. These should not be the pillars of our refugee status determination regime. We need sensible, humane, Careful policy making in the detention space, and we need considerable change. The options are there. The um, consensus from experts is very clear. The alternatives are, are set out. We need change um, immediately on detention because we cannot continue to be visiting this type of harm on people. Mm. We also need appropriate resourcing um, for decision making bodies, appropriate resourcing and training. It shouldn't be the case that people are waiting years for a visa decision, years at the tribunal and years at court. It's critical that there be timely access to justice. And certainly while people are waiting, they need to be able to subsist. They need to be able to work. They need to be able to look after their children um, and be part of their community. Mm -hmm. Legal representation would also make an immense difference. Mm -hmm. We know that People at the tribunal and court are 60 to 70% more likely to succeed with a lawyer. That's not because of anything special. (laughs) It's because it's very hard to engage with these systems. It's very hard to tell your story and Mm -hmm. to understand uh, what is relevant to decision makers, and that is what lawyers can do. People need access at the very basic level to ethical, sound advice. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a starting point. There are, you know, we have a long wish list of things that would transform the system, but those things would make an immeasurable impact.
0: Absolutely. If you don't mind sharing for our listeners, we would be interested to hear what your pathway was like to get to where you are.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So I, um, as a law student, I didn't, I don't think I had access to Much information about the refugee and administrative law space. Mm. I wasn't as engaged with it as I think I would be now. Um, As a result, when I really fell in love with this area was after finishing my studies and when I did a placement at a private practice doing immigration law work. Mm. And it was honestly immediately head over heels for me because the work is just extraordinary and um, a constant source of inspiration and challenge and for people who love both black letter law advocacy you know you're often on your feet in the tribunal in court um, in high pressure situations but who also love creativity in terms of the need to tell people's stories and to write persuasive submissions it really is the perfect the perfect path and after that I've slowly moved closer and closer towards community practice because I believe that's where the gap is and where I can have the most impact as a student if I were having my time again, I think I would really be interested in these practical applications so what does practice look like in these different areas what is most important for me to understand and in this case litigation I'm um, reading, reading, um, the Decisions of Courts is is really inspiring, as is volunteering in um, an organisation that you're interested in, or speaking to lawyers whose pathways you're interested in.
0: I see. I actually do volunteer as a paralegal at the and Seeker Resource Centre, which I find incredibly fulfilling. Do you know if there are other pathways for students to get involved in both your organisation or other relevant organisations?
1: Yes, and we are so lucky to have you, Swatika. We we absolutely love our volunteers and we try to provide as um, interesting a workload as we can. It's a really collegiate space and I think it's a good way to understand what day-to-day practice might be like in any community legal centre. We love new volunteers. Um, We provide quite a lot of training, as I know comparison organisations do as well. But it's, a, it's a really, um, I think it's a way to hone your legal skills. It's a way to get skills with client work. Um, and we benefit immensely from it. We just simply couldn't do the work we do without our volunteers. And so other organizations, um, you know, you have Refugee Legal, you have the Human Rights Law Center. It, it, it's worthwhile thinking about where you most align
0: and considering spending a bit of time
1: volunteering in that environment.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely, and thank you, Hannah, for all the work that you do. And I think the asylum Seeker Resource Centre is incredibly supportive. It's a great environment and culture to work in as well. And thank thank you, you very much. We're, we're 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 thrilled to have you. No, thank you so much for all that insight. And I'm sure our listeners are really going to enjoy this new perspective because I don't think it's a topic that everyone's constantly aware of. And Thank you for your time as well. And it was great having you on our podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, um, It's a great pleasure. And if there's any way we can assist deacon students um, or be involved, we're very happy to do that.
0: Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you, Swatika.